0: quarter of three, isn't it? Well, I appreciated that sermonette. It echoed a lot of the theme that I think we've been seeing in the Feast about the intensity we need to have in our relationship with God and with each other. And uh, today, I want to do a takeoff, it fit in very well with what I wanted to go to today, and that's not just the intensity, but perhaps the intimacy as well with God. And I want to start in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians is a wonderfully inspiring book. It talks about how we are the workmanship of God and gives an intimate picture of how God looks at us. That was in chapter 2, verse 10, I picked that verse out of. And it talks about us having a covenant of promise in verse 12 of 2, and that we are fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God in verse 19, and we're no more strangers and foreigners. But we are an intimate part of what God is doing. Verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So the building we are part of, contains Christ as the chief cornerstone. Have you ever been part of a building that someone built? Uh, Jimmy Hoffa may be, uh, and, you know, and others, uh, part part of a building. But I don't think that's what God has in mind for us. He wants a living, live, intense building in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal in whom you also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. I think it's hard sometimes for us to feel that we are really intimately a part of, I don't mean a part, I mean a part of, what God is doing. Who are we? And we're just flesh and bone down here and don't seem to amount to much, and it's hard for us to visualize what we shall be and what it is that God is going to do through us the mystery of the ages, is what Herbert Armstrong termed it, that we are to become God as He is God. I think on that sometimes and I think we need to think on it a lot to get the vision firmly implanted in our minds as to what it is we are to become. We're far from it today, but we are to become that. And when this festival is fulfilled, a Feast, of Trump, a Feast of Tabernacles. We will be God. We're not going to be living under a vine and fig tree anywhere. That's for these people out here who have not been called as a first fruit. We will observe them sitting under their vine and their fig tree, and we will observe the line laying down with the lamb. But we're not going to be physical human beings there enjoying that. Perhaps some of our children will be but we won't, we'll be God. He goes on through here and talks about how he in verse 8 of chapter 3 is less than the least of all saints. He was the Apostle Paul whom God had called and used very mightily and yet he reckoned himself as being below all the other saints. And we all, I think, reckon ourselves as not being worth a great deal. But Paul did have burning in his breast and in his heart a vision of becoming God, a vision of being with Christ forever and ever. And he realized he was nothing. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. We need to be able to visualize, to understand, to comprehend the size and width and breadth and height of what it is that God is doing in us. Without vision the people perish. If we don't grasp comprehend what God wants to do with us as individuals in an intimate way, then we are in great danger of falling short of that. I have found that anything I ever did in life, at least, whether it be physical, spiritual, or any other way, whether it was building a house or, or making mud pies as a kid, I had to visualize what it was that I had in mind to do before I could accomplish it. So we need to spend some time visualizing and thinking about this mystery that is before us and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. No matter how much we might visualize and come to comprehend, we still can't quite grasp it all. We still look through a glass darkly because it's hard for human beings down here who are still very human to comprehend what it's like to be God. But it's something we need to think on, something we need to meditate about and visualize just what it would be like to be able to go to God's throne in a flash of fire to come back to the earth in an instant faster than the speed of light to be able to know everything that's going on on earth as God knows what is going on on earth to be able to read people's minds we think we can now and their motivations but we miss it terribly I I can't imagine having that power to understand the thoughts and intents of people's hearts But that's the kind of power and understanding and insight, discernment, that he's going to give us. We're to rule the entire earth with him. I mean, that's what Isaiah 30, 20 is talking about there, where you see a man who is about to sin. How do you know he's about to sin? You can read his mind. And you can say, oh, nope, this is the way. Walk in it. Don't think that. Think this. Don't do that. Do this. Husbands and wives get to the point they sort of can read each other's minds after 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of living together. They get to where they finish each other's sentences and and you grunt and she says, yeah, I understand. And she grunts and you say, I wonder what she meant by that. (laughs) And the battle of the sexes goes on. (laughs) You insensitive slob. (laughs) leading up to something here. I want to get into chapter 5. But in verse 30 of chapter 4, he says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. If we're in God's church, we're truly converted. God has sealed us. He set his mark upon us, his, his thumbprint, if you will. Um, and we've been sealed to be there. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. We've told our war war stories, and maybe we've told enough war stories, and there comes a time when you simply need to wash from your mind all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. It's too much still there in us. All you have to do is say, well, I remember such and such, and some of them, boy, I do too, I know what they did back then. You know about old so Do you ever meet so-and-so? Boy, did he ever give me a hard time. See how easy and how quick we are. But we, we haven't put away that anger and malice. That means to me that to some degree we're still living in the past and we need to move forward in an intimacy with God, not an intimacy with our hard feelings about the past. Now this takes conscious effort to put those things out because they don't normally leave. I've seen husbands and wives that have been married for 40, 50 years. They might not remember what they had for breakfast, but they remember how their mate did the wrong thing 40 years ago. <laughs> and they can have knockdown dragouts over something that happened way, way, way back there because they haven't put the anger, the bitterness, the wrath, and the clamor behind. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So here's the attitude that we're to be cultivating. Be you, therefore, followers of God as dear children, verse 5, I mean, chapter 5, verse 1. He looks upon us as dear children. Do you know how you've loved your children and how close you've been and how concerned you've been for your children? how if they start to run in the street or fall down, how quick you are to try to help and preserve and not let them get hurt or fall in any way. That's the intimacy that we should be seeking with God, where he's not just a phantom somewhere up there that said, I'll bless you someday, but where we walk daily with that kind of intimacy and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us and offering in a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor and then it mentions all kinds of sins that we should be avoiding and that it is a shame, verse 12, even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. We don't need to speak of and make crass jokes about homosexuality that is openly practiced, let's say, in San Francisco. That's foolish jesting and speaking of things that are done that are evil. Now, we can deplore those things and seriously put them down, but I don't think we ought to be telling queer jokes. I don't even, you know, we need to get all of that out of our mind. All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever does make manifest is light. Wherefore, he says, awake you that sleep and arise from the dead and Christ shall give you light but we're in a church where all the virgins slumbered and slept and he tells us if we've been asleep we've been spiritually dead to wake up see then that you walk circumspectly not as fools but as wise redeeming the time because the days are evil this could have been written for us today right now. And I think in that sense it was, because God allowed Paul to labor under the false thought that Christ was coming back in his day. And therefore he wrote it in the present and was speaking of the very near future, he thought. But instead, it is written even more, especially in terms of time for those who live right at the end. And therefore God caused it to be written in the present with the very near future in mind for us, upon whom the ages of, end of the age has come. Wherefore be you not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. A lot of people want to be filled with wine to remove themselves from reality. He said, if you want to be filled with something, be filled with the Spirit of God. There's the fervency and the uh, intensity that Randy was talking about. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That is positive instruction. I think we should be playing. If we're going to play music, we ought to be playing some of these things of God in our homes to remind us of him, what he's doing. Music is probably the most emotional thing that human beings have. Boy are the teenagers emotional about their music. And some of those who were listened to Jack or to Jack Benny to uh that wasn't a musician. Well, he kind of played it. And his violin. i uh, I tried to think of one of the big band leaders. You know, some people who are getting on after there in years, uh, look back to that music and they're very passionate about it. And uh some of you were real passionate about the Beatles or Elvis or whatever era you grew up in. Got to have your tunes. Well, some of you grew up in the South, and you got to have your country. You we're very passionate about the kind of music we like or don't like. You're as passionate against as you are for far sometimes. Music is a very emotional thing. David came and played soft music for Saul and Settled the fellow down, so he didn't throw spears at people. and <laughs> uh, it, it had a great range of emotion there, and David, if you read the Psalms, there was a great range of emotion in his music with God. So music is a very emotional thing, and I'm talking here about the intens- intensity and even more the intimacy as we go on that we are to have with God. So since music is so emotional, Maybe we should make that more a part of our daily lives with the right kind of music that glorifies God instead of glorifying romance or, or, or trains and planes and uh, mom in prison or whatever, you know, we listen to. Those things do not help us enjoy the things of God and to think on the things of God. So this is an attitude, verse 20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we get into marriage, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The relationship in our marriages should be full of the fear of God. Respecting and submitting ourselves to each other. Not always wanting our way, but being willing to submit to each other. And that's an important point there. I don't know why it is that we men sometimes read this section and think, Woman, submit! And the whole thing starts out with, submit one to another. Husband or wife. Then he gives specific instruction after that overall instruction to each wife submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the eternal now how much are we supposed to admit or to uh, submit to God and to the Lord all of our thoughts all of our actions a wife should make her major goal in life submitting to pleasing her husband we're going to see this clearly laid out in a little bit For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So a husband should treat his wife the way Christ treats the church, with love, respect, encouragement, strength. Um, Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And Paul in another place says, be not bitter against your wives. Don't resent them. They have a hard enough job submitting to a sweating man with warts anyway. Don't make it harder for her. I mean, it's, it's her life's job to submit to you as she does to Christ. And that's tough. Because you ain't Christ, to put it in the vernacular. Every one of us falls way short of being Christ. And the easier you can make her job, the more likely you are to be a part of the kingdom of God. Why make her job hard for her? Love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. He was willing to die for the church. He was willing to be beaten for the church. We're not even willing to sometimes clean off the sink for our wives. Some of you. That was a joke too. that he might present it to himself an old bat (laughs) how how does yours translate that that he might present it to himself a glorious church a glorious wife not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing well now after we've been married to her for 50 years, she's going to have some spots and wrinkles physically. But the idea here is not spot or wrinkle or blemish spiritually, kind of character of God. But that it should be holy and without blemish. She's probably going to be closer to without wrinkle or spot or blemish when you marry her than when you depart from her. When you die off, I mean, not divorce. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. I've used the example in my body of, of shaving. When I go in, in the morning to shave, I, I usually shower first to get my beard a little softer, and then very quickly I, I put the shaving cream on, and then pretty carefully, I, start, I take that really sharp blade and start scraping on my face, and I'm reasonably easy with that. I don't just start quacking at it. I take pretty good care of my flesh. And when I have scraped the top layer of skin and hair off, then I wash it and, and I put some aftershave on there with alcohol in it to soothe it so that it heals and doesn't itch and burn for half a day. I pat it on carefully and get it everywhere because I don't like that feeling. And if it's and if I have cut myself, I'm careful to dab it a little bit to stop the blood because I don't like to see me bleeding. And I don't like to bleed more when my wife says I'm getting on my white shirt collar. You know, we, we do pamper ourselves, don't we? We pamper our bodies. When we're cold, we want a little more heat. And when we're hot, we want a little cool. And when we're a little bit hungry, we want a whole lot of food. I mean. if we're too full, we groan and moan and say, I ate too much. And we want somebody to feel sorry for us because we couldn't stop eating soon enough. I pampered myself too much. Now you have sympathy with me. I get a lot of sympathy when I eat too much. My wife says, I didn't make you do that. <laughs> I just cooked it. You're the one that shoved it down. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the, Christ, Lord the Church. So he says Christ treats the church the same way we treat our human bodies. There is that kind of feeling, that kind of emotion, that kind of care, that deep care about the church. Very close intimate relationship for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and they two shall be one flesh it's as if they were absolutely joined together as one being that's how intimate the marriage relationship is supposed to be where one hurts the other hurts, when one's happy the other's happy When one wants pizza, the other wants pizza. (laughs) That's a safe analogy because everybody likes pizza. Now verse 32, this is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So this relationship that he's talking about between husband and wife, the most intimate of human relationships is exactly how we are to feel toward Christ and He feels toward us. There just is no more intimate relationship, or not supposed to be, than husband and wife on this earth. He says, this this is a great mystery. It's hard to understand this. It's hard to grasp it. But that is the intimacy that we are to have with Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, See, this is the point, this is the symbolism, this is the overall meaning of all this. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular, each and every one of you specifically, so love his wife even as himself, and the, hus- the wife see that she reverence her husband. Isn't it Peter that says that she should be as Sarah and call him Lord? I mentioned this to my wife one time, and she said, you know, that's be, that'd be kind of hard for a, a modern woman to say, Lord, we were in the South at the time, living in South Carolina there around Charlotte. She says, well, could we just start with lard? <laughs> that's the way they say Lord, down there. Lard, help us, you know. And I said, well maybe it'd be at least it'd be a move in the right direction, you know. But you gotta start somewhere, okay? All right. I wanted to lay a background there about the the mystery that is here and the intimacy that God expects of us and this, our relationships. And now, since we've introduced that. If you would, let's go back to the Song of Songs. You talk about intimacy, Uh, wait till you read this. Understand that Christ actually made our human bodies. Remember back there in Genesis where he came down to the earth and he fashioned a man out of red earth? He actually got down and, well, I think it's Isaiah 64 that says he's the potter, we're the clay. He actually took that dirt, that clay, if it was clay, it was dirt anyway. And he fashioned and formed every last molecule of the man. He's aware of everything on our body, the the, the best-looking parts and the worst-looking parts. He designed them specifically and made them function just like they do. And when he had it all formed and ready, he reached over and turned on the light switch. And light, life, came. And that man stood up as a human being. and God was very, very intimately involved with that, designing every part of it. And then later, he took just a rib out of there, instead of using dirt, you know, women don't like dirt much. They use a rib out of Adam. And from that rib, he started fashioning and forming another form. And he knew every last molecule of that form. God designed a woman. Every part of her. That's how intimate he was in his creation. And then he turned on the white switch. And she came to life. And that's sort of what the Song of Songs is about on a human level. But it's written here to show us the intimacy that Christ has with his church. And he uses the analogy of the intimacy of a husband and wife to explain how it is that we are supposed to be with him. I think that's one of the major overall lessons of this book. There's also a great deal of prophecy included in this book about Christ and his bride right at the end. Because that's where we are. The bride is getting prepared. Now She's been being prepared to some degree or another all through the ages as God has taken a few people from the Old Testament, quite a few people from the early New Testament church, maybe a few through the Middle Ages, and now he's finishing out the number, the complete bride, right now. So he's, he's creating that bride out of men, out of people, out of women. And he is very intimately involved, just like he was in the creation of the original man and woman, just as intimately. He knows every part, every molecule of our bodies and minds. And now that it's almost done, he speaks of us here as if we're married to him. Remember, he speaks of those things that are not as if, as if they already were. So even though he has not come and actually married us yet, this book is written from the perspective that we're already married to it. And that's the vision we need to have of what it would be like to live with Jesus Christ on a daily basis. How he thinks, we are to think. How he acts, we are to act. So that we can begin to read his mind and he can begin to read our mind. He can already read ours but we need to come to be able to actually read Christ's mind. Our relationship with him between now and the time our change comes needs to be such that we could begin to predict how he will react in any given circumstance because we are so intimately involved with his word. This isn't a sermon about Bible study, but it leads us to that. This is the expression of his mind. This is how his mind works. And once we understand this book, that's why we need to have our heads buried in it, we can begin to understand more and more how he thinks. This can't be a one-sided relationship. I mean, between humans, the woman is supposed to have the most intuition, is she not? She's the one that's supposed to be able to read the husband's mind the most. And here we are, the prospective bride of Christ, and we're supposed to know how to read his mind the most. Either that or your woman's intuition is a fallacy. You're barking up the wrong tree, girls. (laughs) If you follow me there. If you're the ones that are supposed to have the insight, I include me, then we'd better start getting insightful. We'd better come to understand his mind and what he wishes so that we are, as Paul put it, of a ready mind, a willing mind and heart to please him in every way. Now you can practice on your husband, wanting to please him in every way. And if you can do that, (laughs) you can please Christ in every way too. You see, it's not a great leap of faith because if you're faithful in little, then you will be faithful in much. But it's easy for us to say, I love the Lord, and if, that was, if you were Jesus, I'd do it. <laughs> but you aren't, and I won't. No, we aren't. But you'd better. Because this is, this is boot camp. This is the practice. This is the time that we learn to have that kind of attitudes. And God has given us men of flesh and women of flesh to interact with, to come to learn, to have that kind of relationship. That's what the Song of Songs is all about. There's a great deal of romance here combined with the prophecy and the analogy of the church. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, this is written in the superlative form, that this is the best of all songs that this is God's number one. This is the best song that ever existed. This is a song about the glory of Christ and his church, of what we're headed for, and how we should be reacting one to another, husband and wife. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the Savior of your good ointments, your name is his ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love you? In other words, you're, you're just the kind of man that is just above everyone, and all the girls would love to have you as their husband, she says to him. Some of, some of you gals, well, maybe not in this room, but some gals, let's put it that way, would rather just simply drink wine than kiss the old man but in this particular case God says that the kisses of his mouth are better than wine draw me we will run after you the king has brought me into his chambers we will be glad and rejoice in you we will remember your love more than wine the upright love you the upright the righteous the ones that are doing it right are going to just simply love God and he's going to Christ is going to bring us into His chamber. I'm not going to go into all of songs. I mean, all of the scriptures about the place of safety, and the chamber, the refuge that He's prepared for us. But the Psalms are replete with it. You can go back there and read that. We won't do it for sake of time. And then she says, "I am black but comely, O you daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar as the curtains of Solomon." Um, It's hard for me to understand it in a way. But there in Jordan on the way up to Petra, I kept seeing these Arab tents. Some of them were as long almost as this room. And they were of black goat hair out there where it gets 110, 15, 20, 25 degrees. They do have flaps that they can roll up to let the, the breeze go through, so it's just a shade. But I did see some white sheep and goats out there. I would think they'd make that out of white sheepskin or skin, but nonetheless... Um, they were black. Now she's being, I think, a little coy here. Um, let's read on and you'll see. Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, uh, you know, the the servant. But my own vineyard have I not kept. In other words, she's saying to her husband, you know, I'm kind of sun-browned here too much and, and I haven't taken care of myself but do I still look okay? And I think we need to sidle up to Christ a little bit and say, you know, I, I'm, I don't know what I really ought to be, but am I okay? Am I pleasing you? What do I need to do here? How, how could I be prettier to you? How could I take care of myself better? That's the way we should be approaching Christ now, to please him in every way. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where you feed, where you make your flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of your companions? Why should I be out here talking to other people? Why should I be involved with others in my relationships when I could come to you? How come we get ourselves sidetracked from the things of God and Christ, our husband, and go off after this and go off after that? Our desire should be to him. I know a lot of people to whom they had to do Bible study by rote. They really didn't want their head in the Bible. They'd rather be doing something else, but they felt it was their duty to go read the Bible. So they'd read the Bible for a half hour, an hour, slap that shut and go watch television or something else they really wanted to do. But I hope we have progressed beyond that. I hope we have progressed to the place that our heart and our mind and our thoughts are with God and with His Word and it is our heart's desire to get into the things of God, not sort of avoid it and do other things. And that was her attitude here. Says, where, where should I find you? Where do you feed? Where will you be? And using him in type here as a shepherd. He said, if you know not, O you fairest among women. Now, we've read several, a lot of scriptures in the last months about the daughters of Zion, the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of the church, and I think prophetically they're talking about those daughters who have broken off from our mother worldwide. And here he's picked one out of all those daughters and married her. He's not going to marry all those daughters. Seven women will take hold of one man, ultimately Christ. So people out of all the churches are going to respond to him and come to him. He's going to choose one out of all these women. If you know not, O you fairest among women, you can go to Proverbs 31 and see this, that he has chosen one and all the others are jealous. There's a lot of jealousy shown right here in uh, the Song of Songs before we get done with it, where the other daughters who were not selected as the wife become jealous of this one. So he says, if you know not, O you fairest among women, go your way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed your kids beside the shepherds' tents. In other words, I'm going to be with the flock. I'm going to be with my people. Can't you figure out where my mind is? Where I'm going to be? It was asked at the beginning of this feast that Christ would come and keep this feast with us that he would be right here. And where his flock is where he will be. I don't know that we're necessarily the fairest among women, but I want to become as clean and as white and as unwrinkled and as unspotted as I possibly can be so that I can be part of that fairest woman when she appears and Christ is prepared to marry her and begins to gather her body piece by piece together to himself. What did he tell Peter as his main job? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. I'm going to be with my flock. Where are you going to be, Peter? Well, I thought I'd go fishing, Lord. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not in the fish. I'm in the sheep. That's where you'll find me, with my sheep. If we're the sheep of God, he is with us. I have compared you, O oh my love, to a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots. Beautiful bunch of horses leading a chariot. Maybe all matched blacks or grays or whites. Beautiful horses. Marching and serve, running and step together. Your cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you borders of gold with studs of silver. There in Isaiah 54, he says he'll lay our borders with sapphires and rubies and various other gemstones, garnets, carbuncles. I think, what did he include, carbuncles? I'm not sure. So, the scriptures in there about the church fit very well here. Talking about, using the same language to describe the fairest among women. While the king sits at his table, my spikenard sends forth the smell thereof, the perfumes. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved to me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. This is Christ in his church. That intimate, where they just lie together, hugging each other all night long. That's how he expects us to react to him and he to us. I speak a great mystery, but I speak of Christ and the church, Paul said. This same analogy, he just gets a lot more detailed about it back here. My beloved is to me a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of En That was an aromatic shrub that grows around near the dead, Dead Sea. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair, you have dove's eyes gentle, kind, loving eyes. The beams of, uh, let's see, Behold, you are fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. Like young people, they would go out in the woods and lie down on the grass under the trees and be lovingly intimate there. That kind of joy, that kind of excitement, that kind of, in one sense, reckless abandon and go in the house and hide but we run out and our bed is green sleeping under the trees the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir so lying on the grass under the trees as i just described not only that but perhaps the implication is here that it's a special house too a special house that was built because in the area around jerusalem and that part of uh, of the middle east you didn't have big cedar trees. The cedars came from way up north in Lebanon, cedars of Lebanon. They had to be brought down. Huge logs are cut into lumber, I don't know which, but they had to be cut and transported a great deal and they didn't have 18 wheelers. So it was very very expensive and arduous to get cedars down to Jerusalem. So they would have been very expensive and rare in that sense. So the house that God is building for us is a very exquisite, very fine home. I am the rose of Sharon, or Camellia, and the lily of the valleys. I looked up the lily here, and it means because of the whiteness. It's a flower or ornament. They have lilies right here growing in this canyon. Very beautiful white uh, flowers. So he says she's white. Well, that reminds us of putting on the garments of righteousness, the white wedding dress. How much intimacy, how much intensity does a prospective bride put into preparing her dress? Oh, they shop and they sew and they look and they prepare and dither around and get all the aunts and nieces and cousins and everybody else involved in this wedding. And dad's saying, what's it going to cost? What's it going to cost? But they don't care. They could care less what it's going to cost dear old dad. Then they come up and flip their little eyelids and say, Daddy, I like this one. And he says, you must really like it looking at the tag. But, But that kind of excitement, that kind of who cares what it costs? This is my wedding. That kind of intensity, that kind of excitement is there. That's the kind of a relationship God expects, or Christ expects us to have with him, as the lily among thorns. A bunch of cactus around, and there's a beautiful lily in it. That's the way he looks upon us. And He'd paw through the cactus to get to the lily, type of a, a analogy here. So is my love among the daughters out of all the churches of God that are out here today. The one that he chooses is going to be like the lily among thorns. Now if you and I want to be part of that, we better start burning some thorns off and growing some real white looking growth to become a lily. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. A lot of imagery here. My husband's just like an apple tree with the sweet, ripe apples on it. Juicy and delicious. Crispy. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay, stay me with flagons. Comfort me with apples, for I am... Well, my, it says sick of love here, like, eh, get away from me, in the King James. So that's a very poor translation. "Love sick" would be better. I'm moon-eyed. I'm about to faint in my tracks because of this fine young man standing before me. I'm getting a case of, what did they call them? The vapors, they used to say when they would faint, uh, you know, the, the ladies of the uh, Victorian era. We have trouble understanding it when our daughters come to us and they're just all a Twitter over. Well, let's see, how would dads describe the guys that come to the door and knock? (laughs) My wife says, I used to be really, really mean to some of those guys. You're coming here for my daughter? (laughs) Who do you think you are? She's the lily of the valley, slob. I tried to be nice, but, you know, I I could read those guys' minds. I could. They were all sick. <laughs> Verse 6, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. So here's Christ in his church. They're lying on a bed and he has his left arm under her holding her close and then his right hand's free to roam. Very intimate picture here. Is this the way you think of Christ? You're supposed to. You're supposed to. And that's what this analogy is here for. We're to be married to him. And he's picturing as if we're already married. I mean, they, it wouldn't be written this way if they were still dating. You young people understand. This this is a picture of after they're married. I, I don't want any confusion there. I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you stir not up nor awake my love till he please. Notice Psalm 102 in connection with this. Psalm 102. Verse 13, you shall arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yes, the set time is come. There's another one that says, it is time for you to rise, O Lord, for they have voided your law. Now, there gives you a time setting of where we are, but this is speaking of essentially right now. We are at a time in God's church here at the end when Worldwide Church of God voided God's law said, the commandments are done away with. You don't need that to be intimate with Christ. Well, yes we do to be in, intimate with Christ. So what David is saying there is it's time to rise and do something about it. The set time to favor her has come. It's time for him to arise. Notice 1.13 in verse 9. He makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. So even though the church has become pretty barren in the last few years and is really not producing much and is not, doesn't have many children left and the number of children is diminishing daily and the children were rebellious and the children aren't what the children ought to be, he says the time has come when that barren woman is to keep house again and to be a joyful mother of children. Not that so the kids, the members are a pain, but that they are a joy again. And that's what we are as individuals to be doing, is making ourselves joyful children so that our mother, all of us, the church, under Christ, as his bride, will be happy. There again, it goes back to Isaiah 54. I'm thinking of uh, of where it describes the bride there. Let's go back there. I hadn't really intended to, but it sure does fit. Isaiah 54. Verse 1, sing, O barren that did not bear. Now, we're looking at this as the church first, later on Israel in the millennium. So if you want a millennial sermon, here it is, but it applies now, or will shortly, to the church itself. Sing, O barren that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the eternal. It's going to start small enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations spare not lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes he's using the imagery of a tent here saying let the tent get bigger and make the cords that hold it down be longer and have more stakes in it to hold it down because it's going to get bigger so when God starts drawing his bride together in the final fulfillment of the latter temple It's going to grow. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Because God is going to bless. For you shall break forth on the right hand and on the left, and this is the way Israel will do in the millennium, they will prosper as they never have before, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed, neither be you confounded, for you shall not be put to shame. For you shall forget the shame of your youth, and shall not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. What we've been going through the last especially 14 years is no longer going to be remembered. And what Israel goes through in the next few years as a nation will at that time no longer be remembered either. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when you were refused, says your God. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Herbert Armstrong used to talk about Acts 3, 19-21 as a time of restitution a time of restoration, he said it was the most pivotal, or the the pivotal scripture in all the Bible, when the turnaround began to come and God would turn his face to his people. And we've endured a moment here where God has turned his face from us as a church, and we've gone through widowhood here, almost it's like, and been barren and bereft and frustrated and confused and sad. And that's the way physical Israel is as well. They've been abandoned by Jesus Christ. He divorced her, booted her out the door, and has nothing more to do with her. But he's going to turn it around to her as well. But that time of restitution, that pivot, is with us. Because we are the ones he is going to restore blessing to first. And we are going to break forth and sing and sing aloud before God and be barren no longer, because his blessings are going to come back to the church in an incredible way. Let's read it in in Isaiah 35. It's another good one. Isaiah 35, we always applied it just to, to the millennium, but I don't believe that. I believe the time of restitution starts earlier, and once this starts, once God turns his face to us and begins to bless us as the bride of Christ, he's going to come and dwell with us. I can show you probably 20 or 30 scriptures indicating that Christ is going to be in the place of safety with us. I think I mentioned that earlier in a sermon, but I don't know whether he'll be sitting on a cliff somewhere above us and looking down upon us and his spirit there or whether he might even appear in a cloud like he did at Sinai. I don't know. We'll see. I hope. I want to be there and see. But once he turns that around, we'll never be bereft again, will we? Because once we're there and he returns the blessing and prepares a table in the wilderness, we go directly from there to the Feast of Trumpets or what it pictures, the first resurrection and right into the kingdom of God. So once this widowhood that we're experiencing right now ends and he turns his face back to us, we will never again sorrow not in the kind of sorrow and confusion of faces we have experienced these last fourteen years. I don't know when this is going to be but he says the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. He's taking us to a desert place I believe and it will blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, the most beautiful mountains they have in Israel, and they don't even begin to compare with the mountains we have here in the United States. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen you the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. That sounds like Hebrews 12, doesn't it? Where he's talking to his church, his bride, and telling her not to be discouraged by this chastening we've gone through, but to lift up the feeble hands and strengthen the feeble knees, or the weak hands and the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Same thing Haggai tells us about rebuilding the latter temple. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, and the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And an highway shall be there, and a way and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein." They won't be there. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's Christ and his bride in type before the millennium ever gets here. And then it's all Israel afterward, that which has been barren is going to produce, and we have absolute ample opportunity to be a part of that, if we will submit to each other and to Christ in the way that he is beginning to describe to us here in the Song of Songs, that kind of an intimate, close, loving relationship. Let's go back to the Song of Songs now. Says it's time for him. Don't don't wake him up till he please in verse seven of chapter two. But there comes a time when he does wake up. Uh, one more I might throw in there is uh, to show you the connection is uh, Zechariah 2. Where he says in verse 13, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. In other words, he sees the church here in chapter 1 going through 70 years in the captivity of Babylon where we've been since Herbert Armstrong raised up the church well nigh on to 70 years in the past. And he's seen basically the earth lying at rest, he says here, about ready to break out into all kinds of war, which is what we see, and we've got a very dicey situation there in the Middle East right now. It's all going to break loose one of these days. But right now it sits at rest, verse 11. And he says then in verse 14, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. He sees us going after idols, going after self-worship, going after taking care of ourselves, going after the things of this world. But he says you have a bag of holes there in Haggai 1 he says, I'm jealous over you. He's frustrated that he can't stand to look at our selfishness. And as we repent, he's going to turn his face back to us with kindness and loving, gentle approaches. Very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Once Tkachas got hold of the church, God became very angry. He was a little displeased at us under Herbert Armstrong. But then when they came in, he became sorely displeased. Therefore, says the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it. So he's talking specifically and only of the church here because it's in the context of the two witnesses in the building of the latter temple. And he's talking about showing mercies and rebuilding, and that's what... Isaiah 54 really was talking about in Isaiah 35 and all those other scriptures in there. There's a duality there, certainly, between the church and then later on Israel, but we're we're the first ones in line. We're the first ones to whom blessing will return. And then he talks about the carpenters that will build and how Jerusalem will be built as a town without walls, verse 4, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. There's an indication right there, I think, that this isn't talking about just the New Jerusalem, but this is talking about towns built down here with men and cattle in them. And remember, the time context here is just as the two witnesses are introduced in chapter 3 and 4. For I, says the Eternal, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be be the glory in the midst of her. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad. land of the north was typical of Babylon when this was written. They were just coming out of Babylon. And right after the Jews left Babylon, it was destroyed. I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven. The church has just been scattered all four directions. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. I've looked this up in several commentaries and in the interlinear, and uh, some say that it should be translated, Deliver yourself, O Zion, pretty much as the King James says here, because that's where they were, was with the daughter of Babylon, and they had to flee from there and go back to Jerusalem or to Zion. The RSV and the Amplified both say flee to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And the interlinear, at least as poor as I understand it, uh, seems to indicate that it could be either way. And I can see how that could be the right translation too, because there they were up in Babylon, and they wanted to flee back to Jerusalem and Zion. So one way of looking at it tells you where where to go from and where to go to, and the other says that the impetus or the onus is upon us to save ourselves. And perhaps both translations could have meaning to us. And he says, he that touches you touches the apple of his eye in verse 8. Here's the same language of the Song of Songs. Remember, she compared him to an apple tree with succulent, juicy, firm apples on it. So that's the same analogy. And he looks upon his bride, the church, right now, as the apple of his eye, the only apple on the tree that has his attention. I've seen trees just loaded with apples. But apparently on the apple tree here, uses it as the imagery here, Christ is looking at the tree and he can only see one apple. I want to be a little molecule or a drop of juice in that apple. I know you do too verse 10 sing and rejoice O daughter of Zion for lo I come and I will dwell in the midst of you says the eternal and many peoples shall be joined to the eternal in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in the midst of you and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall choose Jerusalem again Jerusalem being a type of the church Zion being a type of the church And when? When he rises to shake the earth, when he rises to avenge his people for that which has been done to them, scattered to the four winds. He is going to take his bride. He is very jealous of her, as we just read. Then it goes into a description of the leadership physically that's going to be here on the earth at that time. So now let's go back to the Song of Songs. We've established that there comes a time when he says, it's time for me to wake up. We can be down here and plead, but, but the bride says, shh, my husband's taking a nap. Don't disturb him. Don't bother him. See, she's very solicitous of his well-being. And she's not impatient. She knows he'll wake up when he gets good and ready. He who patiently endures to the end shall be saved. So she patiently listens to him sleep and says, Leave him alone, girls. That's my husband in there. I'm going to take care of him. But she knows it's about time for him to wake up. And she calls out for him to rise and work, for they voided the law. We have reached that time where the law has been voided in the church by some, so we know that this turnaround, this time for him to get to work, to rivet his full attention on the church and come and dwell with her is very near. He will, he will quit turning his face from her. And then when he wakes up, when he pleases, verse 8, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young hart. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. Uh, When we were living in Montana, I remember times when deer would come and look in the window. That's the same imagery he's using here, or she's using to talk about her husband Christ. He's so concerned for her, she's in the house and he's outside like a a deer leaping up on the hills. You saw some, some of you running off yesterday into the woods right out there on the way to the Grand Canyon or coming back or running in front of your car lights. That's not part of the imagery. But that's what she uses. He comes and, and looks in. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So there's a time when he's going to say, I'm going to take you away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, In Palestine, the rains, the uh, former rains started around November, right after the Feast of Tabernacles, and they lasted up until, oh, somewhere around the end of January, February, as I recall. And then you had the latter rains, which were heavier rains, which occurred from that January, more or less, period down to around Passover time. And the latter rains ended then, and you had a pretty well pretty much a dry season then until the former rains begin uh, again about November. So the time setting of this, when he rises to go to work and takes his bride away, is after the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, which is right around Passover, the flowers appear on the earth, that uh, removes all question, the springtime is when the flowers begin to bloom. The time of the singing of birds has come. They've migrated back and are singing and building nests and uh, doing courtship uh, tunes and so on. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. I don't hear the turtle dove around my house in Colorado uh, in December or January. They've all gone somewhere a little bit bit warmer. But in the springtime, the robins come back, the, the doves begin to coo, and you know that new life is coming. And we're talking about new life in the church, that Christ is going to infuse us with new life and to enlarge our borders and, and uh, extend our ropes and put in more stakes and so on. The fig tree puts forth her green figs. They're the first one in the spring They put the figs on before they do the leaves even. And the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Why is it we've always thought the church might play in the springtime? Well, here's one good reason. It says he'll come for his bride and take her away when the winter is past and the rain is over and gone. There could still be inclement weather, and that's what Matthew 24 is talking about when it says pray that it be not in the wintertime. The actual translation should be inclement weather more than middle of winter. And then that fits this. Oh, my dove that are in the clefts of the rock. Now see, he's taken her away, and then you have a, a, par- a, a paragraph break. He takes her away in the spring. Come away. And then where does he take her? Oh, my dove that are in the clefts of the rock. There's a psalm, I think it is, or is it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, I forget, which talks about her being uh, like doves upon the side of the rock in the mountains. So he's going to take her to... Some steep hills where there are clefts in the rocks. And the secret places of the stairs. That one perplexes me a little bit. What does the secret places of the stairs mean? Um, I looked it up in Strong's. It's 4095 in the Hebrew, which just says step. Or by implication, a steep or inaccessible place. He takes her to a place that is inaccessible to her enemies. To a steep place with clefts in the rock. We were just uh, commenting yesterday as we were going down to Grand Canyon. In the rearview mirror, you couldn't see it so much in the front because we were going away toward the canyon, but uh, there is a geological series of steps there in northern Arizona and southern Utah where they they are just like stair steps going up five steps. Uh, Clinton recently made it a national monument and called it the Escalante Grand Staircase National Monument because of those steps. You can see the white cliffs and the red cliffs, the pink cliffs, and from the air, I've seen it before, uh, you can just see the landform moving up like stair steps. So maybe he's talking about something of that nature because he's not, I don't know what else to attach it to, that there's some place where there are clefts in the rocks and it's pretty much inaccessible, and he's gonna take his bride there in the springtime so that she has safety and peace and privacy with him. So he's taking her to the clefts of the rock, the secret places of the stairs, let me see see your countenance, let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice and your countenance is comely. Just so eager to talk to each other, to see each other. Are we eager to talk to Christ, to communicate with him in a much more intimate way than we have been able to? That should be our longing, to hear his voice, to talk to him. I don't know whether he's going to talk to us in that sense, uh, as he did Sinai, and if he does come to talk to us, perhaps we'll say, ooh, I'm not sure that's the voice I want to hear. Uh, Let Moses speak. But he has the capacity to come to us as thunder or lightning and earthquake, or he has the capacity to come as a still, small voice, too, as Ezekiel. Ezekiel, is Elijah uh, experienced. Verse 15, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Remember, the symbology of foxes in the Bible is of the Edomite. That's what Christ used when he referred to Herod, who was half Edomite. It says, that fox. So it says, this should be translated better, catch the foxes. Remember the book of Obadiah, where it says that The Edomite will come and try to snare Israel, try to destroy Israel. So Edomites, uh, from a prophetic standpoint, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, our vines have tender grapes. So God is going to have a tender people, a young people, a young church, and the Edomites are going to try to eat it up, to destroy it. The foxes, like those little tender grapes that came on at the beginning of in the spring, when the vineyard began to produce, so they had big towers that they built in the middle of the vineyard, so they could sit up there with their bows and their little pointy arrows—not the stopper type—and uh, and shoot the foxes when they would come in, or they would set snares and traps for the foxes, so they couldn't come in and eat the gra- eat the uh, the grapes. My beloved is mine. There's some jealousy here. Remember what he said there in Zechariah 1? I am jealous for my bride, for my church. I am his. He feeds among the lilies. He enjoys the whiteness of her character. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be you like a roe or a young hart or a deer upon the mountains of division or separation. That's what the word means. Until the day break... That is, until we can see again. We've been pretty much blinded, haven't we, for the last 14, 15, 20 years, wondering what's going on, where is this all headed, what's happening to the church. We'll begin to see here that upon the hills of this separation or division in the church, we couldn't see clearly. So he, he says, until the day breaks forth, until the light begins to shine, that we can see again, that we can have a vision of where we are headed. And these scriptures give us a vision of what's going to happen and how God is going to, how Christ is going to turn to His bride again. And the shadows flee away; we can see clearly, It's like the mountains out here in, in, in the morning. If you notice how the sun hits way up there first, you can begin to see, and it, we're still down here in shadow, shivering, and it looks nice and warm and bright up there. But over a period of time, then, as the sun gets a little higher, the light shines right down on us. So we're beginning to see a vision here in a sense, kind of like it's up there a ways, but it's not quite to us. But as time goes on here, the light is going to get brighter. We're going to see better. We're going to see through the glass, not quite as darkly, but clearer, and get a better vision of what Christ is going to do both with the church and with Israel. And The closer this gets, as the sun gets a little higher, the better we'll see. And then the light, the light is going to burst down upon us just like it does here in the morning. That's the kind of analogy that she's using here. By night on my bed, I better look at my watch. It's three minutes till four. We quit at four, don't we? Or allegedly. I think we'd better not start into chapter three. Uh, You know, I've I've taken half hour to forty five minutes from you in the last uh, three sermons, so I'll give you two minutes back. How's that? Spend an extra forty-five minutes, I'll give you some change. Yeah, rather than get into chapter three, I think we better just stop there since we are up to the time and maybe we can pick it there pick it up there again tomorrow.